0: Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org W-O-A. From St. Louis Public Radio.
1: This is Politically Speaking. The veto session of the Missouri legislature is less than two weeks away. With over $500 million worth of budget vetoes to consider, it is possible that some lawmakers will attempt to overturn some of the decisions made by Governor Mike Parson. On this episode of Politically Speaking, State Senator Carla Esslinger joins the show for the first time. Esslinger, a member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, gives her perspective on the budget as well as her thoughts on education, foreign ownership of farmland, and the 2024 election. Let's hit the Music This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics.
0: My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to
1: change those laws that they are balanced and they affect everybody people. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area in North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to
2: people.
0: I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table.
1: We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians.
2: I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done.
1: Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, statehouse and politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me via Zoom in St. Louis is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent.
2: Jason Rosenbaum.
1: And joining us today, joining us via Zoom, she represents the 33rd District in the Missouri Senate. Carla Eslinger. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you on. And since this is your first time on Politically Speaking, we have a lot of questions for you. But I first want you to kind of describe your district. Tell me who you represent.
0: Absolutely. You know, I represent seven counties uh, for Senate District 33. Uh, Douglas, Howe, Ozark, Shannon, uh, Stone, Taney, and uh, and Texas County, and I believe that's seven. I live right in the middle of them in a small town called Wasola in Ozark County. You know, I'm blessed to represent what I call the heart of the Ozark. My district runs from Table Rock Lake to, if people are familiar, to Echo Bluff State Park. And if you've ever been down here and have visited and enjoyed our state parks and our hunting and fishing and Great Lake. Uh, you, will, you will agree with me that it's uh, probably the most beautiful part of the state.
1: Since you are a first time guest, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you did before you were elected to the Missouri General Assembly.
0: Okay. Well, um, a lot of people um, I've noticed like to label me as a superintendent because of my time as a superintendent of school at Ava and West Plains, um, but, I, but I like to just consider myself uh, the old school lady who helps students and helps people. I've been a teacher, a principal, a superintendent, and I worked for uh, both the state at the Desi, the state level, and also the federal government. And my job has always been to try to go in and fix these wicked problems that are very difficult, and trying to deliver on this promise that all kids deserve a quality educational experience. Um, you know, I've never thought I was, I was ever would be involved <laughs> in politics. It was just not anything that uh, uh, it was my destiny destiny really it wasn't anything I planned for. Um, a good friend of mine who I, I totally just absolutely respect, Maynard Wallace, he approached me about running when Lyle Rowland was just about turned out. And I thought that um you know if they have this faith in me and and I have to tell you I promised that when it came my time to both of these gentlemen that I would I would run and I keep my promises. So I just thought well, if I could be half the statesman those two are and fill those big shoes, then I could do some a little bit for my community. And it's uh, it's been a, a great experience for me. Um, I have been able to get some things done that I'm very proud of, and I, I look forward to, the, to uh, even serving them uh, as, as long as possible.
2: You only ended up serving a single term in the Missouri House. Uh, why were you so eager to make your way to the General Assembly's upper chamber in 2020?
0: You know, frankly, um, I'm not a young person, so I'm <laughs> I've retired a couple of times and I just knew that uh, for me to really be able to do the work that I know needs to be done in our area, I needed to be in the Senate. And so that is why I decided to jump and I have to I want to make sure that my time of service is really going to have the biggest impact.
1: This is your third year in the Missouri Senate, which is a place with a lot of intra-party conflict. As you know, we've both been in that chamber. What has been your strategy navigating
0: what can be, you know, a pretty contentious chamber? Uh, it's true. It can. I mean, I'm sure most of us have watched those late nights uh, uh, where people are just tired and had it and their uh, nerves are frazzled. But my um, the way that I've operated as far as my entire professional career is I, I have everything eyes dotted, T's crossed. I make sure that there is some really good, good communication and understanding of what I'm trying to do before I ask the question of can I or would you support it? I, I do a lot of back, kind of um, preparing work, front loading work, uh, to make sure that nobody feels surprised or nobody uh, is unaware of what's in my legislation. So I think that being prepared, and uh, being ready to answer any question and be able to to spend the time with each one of those senators or anybody else who, who has an interest in my legislation, I think that's what caused has caused me to be successful. Uh, I just do my homework.
1: I was literally about to say, it sounds like you do your homework, and I think you would agree, yeah?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the thing is that most people, uh, when you work with them directly and they understand your purpose and what it is you really want to get done, Uh, There's times that I can help them with an amendment they want to put on my legislation, but I take the time to give them a good answer as to why not, or as to why it will fit and what we can do together.
2: You know,
1: it seems like the Senate this year was able to avoid a lot of the drama of 2022 until the last week or two of session. How did you see this year is different than the other years that you've served?
0: I think what I noticed is one um, uh, leadership. Obviously, you know, we had Caleb and he was he's great, and we had Cindy with us this year. And Cindy just provided that, um, I think, just a uh, a push in, we're not playing games, we want to get some good work done, and if you come to the floor and you're not prepared, or if you come and you just want to cause havoc, you probably aren't going to get as much time. Uh, I think she just handled herself very well, and she provided opportunities for, for most of us, and she really did look to see where is it that she can help the whole. She didn't push her own agenda. Uh, I just think that we had good leadership this year, and I think that really helped us.
1: Kind of in a way, the session isn't quite done yet. We still have veto session. You know, you are a member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, and so you probably took great interest in Governor Mike Parson vetoing more than $555 million worth of items. What was your general reaction to that move?
0: I'm sure everybody probably uh, has something they wish they that didn't get both vetoed. I'm sure Representative Cody Smith and Senator Huff, they had projects at that they championed as well that would benefit Southwest Missouri. That actually got vetoed by the governor. You know, a project that I was passionate about that received a veto was an environmental study for Highway 63 in Texas County. And it was going to be the first step in trying to do a four lane uh, for, to push some more industry and some more economic development into which is actually uh, some of the poorest counties in our state. And the reason for it is because of infrastructure. But I really think, you know, I think the governor did the best job he could do balance those prices for the state while making sure we have a balanced budget that doesn't come back and, you know, kind of bite us in five or 10 years. Will the Senate override any of the governor's vetoes? Like, was that part of your question?
2: Well, yeah, that <laughs> you, you, you almost <laughs> you said our minds, Senator. Really?
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> That's the next question I always get. So.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind know, of, a, and, and Sarah has explained this a number of times. It's very likely that the House may override some vetoes, but <laughs> It does seem that it really will be up to Senator Huff about which vetoes he wants to override because it's his bills that he's handling. And I think you were there when the whole uh, kerfluffle over Senator Moon trying to override something uh, over Senator Hageman uh, caused a lot of consternation. So it seems that it's gonna be really in Senator Huff's court. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Oh, absolutely and it and, and it should be that way we always you know that's one of the underlying um pieces about our the way we do business is that you own your bill you know you can that's your bill and you can uh, offer a beat or you can offer uh, amendments to it or what but but you have control of the bill you can decide it goes forward or it doesn't so um yeah I think that uh, it is up to Lincoln Huff and and you know but but when I look out across the entire uh budget there's some good things that happened. All across so we can't we can't really say that um good things didn't happen it did but but i think you have to really decide is it something that um you know that you can demonstrate that your project is uh that was vetoed has to be done now or can you can you really push and tell and talk to Lincoln about the benefit of the that this that that this, your particular piece that you're concerned about that was vetoed does it benefit the entire state not just one thing, Or, you know, can it actually wait until next year or, or maybe it can't? Those are the things I think Lincoln's probably have, or having conversations with folks about if they come to him and want him to support a veto. I, I would assume.
2: So, you know, there were, you kind of alluded to this, but there were a, one of the reasons Governor Parson issued so many vetoes was that he was concerned that the state surplus is not going to last forever. And there needs to be a some sort of cushion if there's an economic downturn. What do you make of that argument?
0: Sure. You know, I'm a fiscal conservative, and I know that in my own business that I run or even, you know, personal accounts or whatever, and I run some pretty large school systems, uh, you want to be able to have a balance that helps you weather those storms. Uh, you have reoccurring costs every year of things that you've got to be able to fund. And in a state, we're looking at, you know, police and schools and, and uh, uh health services, all kinds of things across the state that we want to make sure that we do have consistent quality programs. Uh, So I think it's smart to think about that. Uh, Some people thinking, okay, what's what's enough is the question. Is this many millions and millions or that many millions and millions? Um, We know that our economy is always on a pendulum. You're going to be doing well, then you're going to be doing not so well, and then in between. So it is good fiscal conservativeness for us to to stop and take just a bit of a pause and make sure that each thing that we are promoting for that particular budget year is something that we feel that we can totally afford and is not gonna jeopardize the future of our state.
1: You know, in addition to talking about the state surplus, Parsons said a tax cut for social security benefits and state pensions played a role in his decision to veto things. Do you think that bill will have a net negative impact
0: on the state's bottom line? I think we have plenty of opportunity because of the fiscal conservativeness that we have. To see that if we get to a point where the revenues coming in does not uh, support the cost of, of running this, the state, then we can we can make some adjustments. But I don't believe so. I think that anytime that you can reduce uh, those kinds of taxes on our constituents, on the people of the state, and I don't think that they were huge, um, I think that that's a good thing. And like I said, with with this kind of a balance, you get more of like a runway into or do we need to do something or are we going to be in trouble? Because, we, you know, I'm sure as you do with your own personal finance and we do as a business, you forecast what you think is going to happen. You do estimates on revenues coming in and you uh, truly uh, monitor that budget several times throughout the year. So, no, I, my answer would be, no, I don't think that we have jeopardized the fiscal health of the state by those tax cuts.
2: The the main part of that pension slash uh, Social Security bill, though was the ability for counties if they vote either through a referendum or through a county commission to freeze property taxes for seniors. Now, this has caused a great deal of consternation in St. Louis County. I'd be interested to hear how some of your counties have approached this possibility and whether any of them have taken advantage of it yet.
0: I'm not aware, uh, Jason, that any of have taken advantage of it yet. I know there's a lot of conversation going on various county uh, assessor meetings and this and that and they're really trying to just understand exactly how they can do it and put this program in place in their in their counties so that they do it well. Uh, I haven't had um, a lot of consternation from them except they want more guidance uh, from the park revenue or, or whatever as to the questions that are kind of laying out there right like uh, so how do you prove your home after, and, and when does it trigger Does it trigger when you turn 65 or is it, is there any kind of, um, what is that? When you go back and, and say, well, when I was 65, I paid this much tax. There's all those kinds of little loose ends that are associated with this, which I would I would understand St. Louis folks uh, having consternation over it. But uh, I, I do think that in the long run, uh, this will be a value to our, our seniors, because think about the other side of this. They cannot control uh, the inflation of their property at times, and so they'll be in their homes, and then their property assessments go way up, and then they're not able, because they're on fixed income or whatever, to actually cover those costs. So that's that's something we have to look at, and I think this bill has done that, but the one good thing is that nobody's going to do it unless they vote for it locally, and so hopefully they wait until they get the, the little nuances about their particular area or region uh, kind of figured out before they vote for it to go through.
1: Is there anything in particular that you think the legislature will be interested in doing with the remaining surplus? Could it be socked away to prepare for less fruitful economic times? Or is there another major project worth spending it on?
0: You know, my interest and, you know, we had a little trouble on broadband, right? (laughs) When we first uh, us hooking up to to have this interview. You know, I I want us to have uh, in my district. I like for us to, to really look at the infrastructure pieces that drive our ability to get to and from work, move our products. And it really makes my district viable and t- more viable for economic development. But overall, I I don't have not heard of anything in particular statewide. You know, nothing like the I seventy improvements or some of those big ticket items. i haven't had having conversations with folks about that. Um, I think that now we're seeing a dip in our revenues a little bit. It's not it's not any less than what we had projected. But I think that uh, we need to kind of watch and see uh, how things are going to go. And I think it's very smart of us not to try to plan to spend all, but try to be, you know, like I said, pretty conservative about uh, what we do with those dollars. First time, it's probably one of those things where um, you don't have this opportunity often, <laughs> so we have to be very careful with it.
1: I want to move on to education, one which is kind of an area that there wasn't a lot of movement this year was education policy. I know the Senate had a very, very big bill that was considered for like an evening and then it went away. You know, there's been some chatter about some Republicans wanting to expand uh, children's savings accounts or charter schools. What are your expectations about what education-related bills could be considered next year?
0: Well, you know, um, as far as what can be considered, I've, uh, this is, what, what I think about five years now, I've, I've gone to session to see what's happening and uh, whether in the House or the Senate. And uh, considering what could be, I keep seeing the same characters show up, right? We have open enrollment, you have uh, ESAs, you'll have expansion of charter, or you'll have some kind of uh, a push to put a little more funding into schools or to revamp the formula or, you know, name one. Um, but I think the bottom line is, is that any kind of Legislation that we put forward, we have to ask our ourself the question, and this is something I think sometimes we we don't do as well as we should. Is this good for all kids? And so I think that that is something we have to be careful about. You know, two years ago we were able to get some uh, pretty significant legislation with Senate Bill six eighty one, and it it looked at that answering that question that as a state, you know, are our kids literate? Uh, That was a huge thing. When I asked that question. You know, I hear this data about how, how the kids can't read, and I'm like, well, I don't believe that, one. And the second part of it is, give me some more data, and how do you know, and, and tell me exactly, how do we know that our kids are literate? So that bill really pushed the Department of Education to, to do those things and to give us that data. Uh, it was a bipartisan approach of tackling, to me, one of the most significant issues of our state is that we've got to be able to say to our public, to our parents, that our kids are able to read at this level. And if they're not, what are we doing about it? So uh that to me was it was really important. And Sarah, you mentioned that last year we had um, you know, we had several education bills moving at the end of the session. And you know, those uh bills included things that were around open enrollment, uh parent bill of rights, I think a statutory increasing the minimum of teacher salaries and uh, making sure our seniors are prepared for the workforce. And but unfortunately, as we all know, uh that we weren't able to tackle any of those. They were kind of like put all in one sack and and it just didn't go anywhere. But um, next year, I do expect um, uh, for us to have some of the same kinds of things being discussed and considered. Uh, But you know, one thing that I have an interest in that continues to pop up, and it's something that I really would like to learn more about and I'm excited about the, the work they've done and it's called the Success Ready School Network. And they have a new proposal, which is actually just approved by the state board, and it allows 20 of our school districts, public school districts, uh, to use what's considered an innovation zone waiver for part of the end-of-year assessments. And it gives them this opportunity to design and pilot like a new APR, annual performance report, that would focus on this personalized competency learning-based kind of thing, which just really drives down to what the student needs and what the, what the student needs next. Uh, personalized is the main word there. You know, we know every kid's different and so why aren't we as a state? And so I like the idea that we provide opportunities for individual school districts uh, to focus on a personalized learning kind of thing instead of this kind of a cut and paste testing. Sarah, back in the several years ago, I've retired a couple of times, one of my jobs was i worked across this nation and I used, um, created personalized learning environments for, for many help trained teachers and leaders. And how that looks, what that looks like in the classroom, how you prepare your teachers to facilitate that kind of learning. To me, it is where the parents are more informed of, uh, more often as to what their kids are doing, what they need to do next. Gives that information to teachers. Uh, you don't wait for that end of end of test, end of year test, to decide whether you got the job done or not. It, it's just something I, I'm looking forward to uh, to watch how they how they progress, and and that is a result of the, that uh, innovation zone legislation that was passed a couple years ago
1: we have found your wheelhouse as far as 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 a topic that obviously you're super (laughs) enthusiastic about which makes sense given your background you know do you Uh, think that there's a split between what rural republican legislators want in terms of education policy and what suburban lawmakers may push for
0: you know i there i probably there is i think that uh choice is more of a thing that we hear more about in urban areas uh, but I, I like to, I like the idea that it doesn't matter if it's a charter or a, a scholarship account or a public school or a, a private school, um, all rural, urban, whatever it is, all parents want their kids to have the best opportunity and to have the most high quality programs accessible to the children. Um, so I think that sometimes rural parents maybe don't see the options they have or urban parents don't see the community and the small school kind of thing that happens in a rural area. It's two different places. And just like I said before, we are so different across our state. We need to be able to listen to our communities and listen to our parents and see what it is that those particular groups would like to have and what they need to provide quality education for their kids, whether it's urban, rural or whatever. So um, I think it's you know different environment, yes. But the tools to educate, I think, could be applied anywhere.
2: You know, school just started here in St. Louis, and I'm sure in your neck of the woods. And, you know, this is only my observation as a a parent of two kids who are in public schools. But it does seem like we're getting some breathing room from the whole uproar around the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, But it's pretty clear that the pandemic has had a massive impact over how kids have been able to learn, especially young kids. Do you think that this could be the year where maybe some of those kids that are behind because of the pandemic are going to be maybe catching up more rapidly?
0: You know, I think you have a, a crystal ball there, Jason, because that's exactly what I'm looking at and seeing. And hallelujah, the COVID thing is is in our, our rearview mirror and we're able to move forward. Uh, I've visited several schools and have done uh, where I, I get to go in and visit with staff as they start their school year. And I can tell you that I, we have some very excited and motivated educators. I've just visited a uh, charter school in St. Louis, and I was just just floored how happy the kids were, the teachers are energized, people are ready to go. And I really think you're going to see uh, positive gains across our state when it comes to what kids can can do and what they know and do. So, um, yes, I, I think that, uh, you know, to me, I think, hold on to your hat, because we saw some pretty uh, scary numbers uh, the last year or so, looking at that dip, that loss of learning. But I think we're going to see some pretty substantial gains this next year.
2: And, and you know, I'm going to knock on wood. I, I think I this this desk is wood, so I'm knocking on wood right now. Um, but but you know if there is a sp- significant uptick of covid-19 cases how do you think schools will handle the potential outbreaks differently from 2021 and 2022 especially when the vaccine is available for kids there are therapeutics that could be deployed for high-risk people it doesn't seem like the strategy of like completely shutting down schools and going virtual is really viable anymore so have you talked with sort of Educators about what their plans are if God forbid there is another large uptick in COVID uh throughout our state.
0: And right. I, I really hope that desk you knocked on is wood. So we for sure have that good luck with us. But you know, I I just think that the the main thing that we were dealing with when it came to COVID was the unknown, the fear, the um what do we do? How do we do it? And we have gone through so many learning lessons through COVID. Um, that I think that even even if we did have a bit of an uptick or whatever, we were just so much better prepared for how we can truly uh, handle the situation, make it the best, safest place for kids, but still continue that opportunity for learning that we know is so essential. Uh, I think we're just, you know, it's just another, just maybe another opportunity or whatever you wanna say, to, to show that we do learn from the past.
1: And we're back on politically speaking with our guest, State Senator Carla Esslinger. Let's get back into it. In my opinion, it's never too early to talk about the upcoming session, even though it is months away. You know, 2024 is an election year. Do you expect more difficulties in passing major legislation, since so many people,
0: including yourself, will be on the ballot? Right. Um, You know, I I chair uh, what's called government accountability now. Was the old uh, professional professional. uh, Uh, well, whatever it was, it was about certification and professional licensure. So I, I, you know, I'm looking at things and and about around that compacts, things that, things that we can maybe loosen up a little bit of the uh, red tape around licensing uh, so that we can get folks to work. You know, uh, I think that the IP piece is going to come back. Um, This is not like a major issue in my district that I've heard from my constituents. Um, Well, Mainly, it's they. What they want is they want their voice to be heard. So I I have to rephrase that and say, you know, it is an issue that they are concerned about. But uh, the specifics around how to do uh, it—that is where we always kind of get bogged down. So uh, the thing that I know is that if you stand out in front of Walmart, Napa, Missouri, and you came to collect signatures to to legalize recreational marijuana, they didn't come uh, from West Plains or Gainesville. Okay, so. Uh, that probably didn't happen. So that's what they see. They see something that we would not have supported. That is that has occurred, and so they they have an interest in it. They want to know how their voice can be heard.
1: Do you think that because it is an election year, it's just going to be harder to get stuff done because people are running for things and they want you know they want their moment on the House floor, the Senate floor. You know, how do you think productivity is going to be?
0: You know, we'll just kind of sit back and watch. I guess my my forecast is that I really hope that we identify some priority items that we really want to get across the line that we work together and get these things done but in reality we know that we have that situation where somebody really wants a piece of the legislation to be front and center because it's going to be important for the re-elect or for their for their next uh, uh, job so reality is yeah, there's going to be a lot of grandstanding there's going to be probably a lot of people who want to push their personal agenda over the what they is good for the state um i think you know you guys have watched it long enough to know that we are we are looking at uh, several of our state uh our senators are running for statewide uh of course there's a few of us that are up for reelect you know it's just going to be it's going to be one of those years that uh uh we don't get as much done maybe but I'm i am i am optimistic I really want us to be able to get some of these things uh, over the finish line.
1: To go back to uh, the issue of amending Missouri's Constitution, you know, we've asked many lawmakers if they expect to take up the effort to make the Constitution more difficult to amend. And most say yes, even after a similar plan failed recently in Ohio. What are you hearing?
0: You know, I'm hearing concern about the results of Ohio. Like, okay, how can we learn from that? How can we make sure that we don't go down that path? Because obviously that was a lose. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly. I haven't actually looked to see what kind of their what language they had or what their what the outcome was. I just know it it didn't pass. So that is part of the conversation. I expect us to have more conversation as a caucus when we go uh for our, our uh our caucus after veto. So you
2: you are you are in a area of the state that does have agriculture as a dominant industry. Um and we talked about this during the show. This may be an issue that is more uh relevant in North Missouri than South Missouri, but there was a lot of talk on the on on the Senate floor and the House floor about a quote unquote ban on foreign ownership of farmland. Um and I'll 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 tell you in a second why I think that I'm putting the ban in quotes, but do you expect that issue to reemerge and and what role do you think senators like yourself who represent highly agricultural areas are going to play in steering that debate even if you personally are maybe not the lead person
0: right well you know if you stand in the uh, go to church and, and talk to folks or go to go down to the grocery store and and if you can ask anybody in my district what do you think about foreign ownership of farmland? And of course, you're like, "Oh no, that'd be horrible. We don't want we don't want China owning our land, and when we don't we don't want that to happen." And I understand that, and I support that. Uh, the part that I think is the way we get bogged down is, so what do you do? How do you do this? When we think about large uh, animal operations or or ag industry, these have uh, board members that are varied right across the board. They could be from different countries, for that matter. And so how do, you, how do you operationalize the idea that that person on that board cannot have an interest or a vested interest in or gain from whatever their company is doing? I mean, it could be that that far-fetched. I think that we need to protect our farmland from foreign ownership, absolutely. But I think you have to get real about how do you operationalize it to where we don't create more of a problem than what we have.
2: Right, and this is why I put the the word ban in quotes. Yeah. And I, I want to just, and I've, I've mentioned this on other shows, but when we talk about China owning our farmland, it's because a company called Smithfield was bought by a Hong Kong-based company in 2013, and they have a pretty sizable footprint in Missouri, which and I think it's gotten smaller because some of the operations are closing, unfortunately, but any bill is not going to go to Smithfield's land and confiscate it. This is really just saying that they can't expand beyond what they already have. So even so basically, and and this maybe seem like a like a like a linguistical complaint, but I don't think it's really a ban Then it's really just a freeze because there's still going to be farmland owned by a Hong Kong based company, even if this bill passes. Am I totally off base here? Is this kind of your view as well?
0: It's, it is my view as well, but I do think that uh, there are people who look at that and they really have the opinion that that company should not own farmland and that you've got to realize that that's a huge industry. That's a big economic driver in our state. So how do you actually get real about this? Um, I, it, it's one of those things where it could be as ridiculous as if I had to run every sale of land through, through the Department of Ag then I have to ask permission for somebody to buy my land so they can check them out to make sure they're not, not uh, a, a non-U.S. citizen. It, it could be that nutty. So I think it's important for us to be careful. I don't want to where uh, we end up with a bunch of our land being owned overseas or wherever it is. But I don't think that it's realistic for us to think that we're going to go back and be retroactive and say, hey, Smith, Bill, give up half your holdings. You know, that's not yep. going to happen.
2: You actually just brought up a point that i've I've never thought of before. Like, how would a how would you even be able to enforce restricting existing companies um, from trying to expand their 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 footprint? Like, how would that actually be enforced? Like, I know the Department of Agriculture in Missouri is is probably a well run agency, but it's probably not omnipresent, and it probably doesn't know every single transaction that's going on. What Can you kind of address that point? Because I know that in addition to being an educator and a legislator, I think you also know a lot about farming. So I'd be interested in that point, too.
0: Well, and that's the thing is that when I've got a buyer and I want to be able to uh, to sell some land or be able to purchase some land, I don't want to wait for a state agency to tell me it's okay, right? Uh, that, oh, yeah, we've checked it out. You're fine. Go ahead and sell it or, or buy it or whatever. Um, but that 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 piece of this with how do we do it? And that conversation of who monitors it, how do we check it, uh, that was actually some of the conversation that we had uh, just on the sidebar, some senators, as we were looking at this legislation, trying to consider how how do we operationalize it? That's something that I always do, Jason, is I think about, yeah, it's a good idea. We want to protect our farmland 100%, but we got to be careful about how so that we don't end up again with more problem than what we started out with.
1: All right, we're gonna move on to the last section, which is about the 2024 election. How do you see Republicans faring in next year's elections?
0: Well, you know, I, I live in probably one of the most Republican portions of our state. And um, uh, I think we have a record that we're moving our state forward in the right direction. And uh, I'm very proud of the the work that we've been able to accomplish. And uh, so I, I, I think the, the future is bright for Republicans in my part of the state and the state overall.
1: Do you think that, uh, to kind of shift a little, do you think that the primary between uh, Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, and State Senator Bill Eigel for governor, how do you think that's going to shake out?
0: Well, we will have to wait and see. I hate to to forecast that. I do know that uh, Jay Ashcroft comes in with some great name recognition. Uh, you can't hardly pick up a paper or or, or tweet or whatever without Eigel being all over it. And, but I do think that uh, Senator Kehoe has worked. I mean, uh, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe has worked very, very hard, and he has a proven track record that he is a leader and can get some things done. Um, and I just see every practically everywhere I go, uh, there is there are people that uh, that approach me about and they saw him, they talked to him, whatever. So I think he's going to be a pretty strong contender. When it first came up, you know, people were just pretty much sure that. Uh, uh, Jay Ashcroft had the had the race because of, you know, obviously his father such a great hero for the state. But I, I really think that uh, we've, we're going to have a pretty good race. And I think that Kehoe is is uh, someone that uh, will probably be um, successful.
1: You know, some glowing words for Lieutenant Governor Kehoe there. You know, is is he who you're supporting or if not, you know, which candidate do you think have an advantage?
0: I I do support uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe. I'm very proud to say so. And of course, that puts me in a position where, uh, you know, there's folks who don't. There's folks who support the other candidates. And I think that as mature people who are trying to do the best we can to to work towards the next generation and taking care of them, everybody has a right to an opinion. And I think that uh, we all should respect each other's.
1: Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Senator Esslinger, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking as a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri St. Louis. And you can follow all of our work at stlpr.org. Senator Esslinger, where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found?
0: Well, of course, you can always uh, go to the carla.esslinger Carla, uh, at senate.mo.gov. Uh, we watch that account very closely. And uh, just send me a text and send me an email. I'll be glad to respond and uh, get back to you. So sure. All
1: right. Well, until next time. So long. a smart speaker you have access to the entire world of npr and st louis public radio all the latest news and all the captivating stories activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play st louis public radio